Welcome to the Puerto Rico News Roundup podcast, prnewsroundup.com. Today with me is the traditional after-court uh, discussion with lawyer and analyst John Mudd. Hey, how's it going? So this time we're actually not in a cafeteria as we were last time trying to <laughs> summarize things. We actually are uh, a day later, having hopefully had a little bit of time to think about uh, what happened yesterday. Before we got into kind of the uh, meat of the day, one of the things that, that got a, a quick glance discussion was the discovery regarding the audit of the debt. How did yeah. you hear what was said and uh, what, what was your interpretation of it? The, non, the Unsecured Creditors Committee filed this motion under Rule 2004 of the Bankruptcy Rules, saying we want to make discovery of how we came to the debt, okay? And we want to make discovery on Banco Popular, Popular Securities, Santander Securities, Banco Santander, the GDB, and we believe certain individuals, which they name as John Doe, etc., but obviously one of them is uh, Carlos Garcia from the board, were involved in this. Before that motion was filed, at no time did the board say they were going to do the, the uh, any audit or a review of the debt, although PROMESA does say that they should, okay? What well, says they can? They can. Or it basically says, you know, it gives them authority to do so, and one would think they would, but the guy, but Carrion had said that he was not going to do it either. The point is that all of a sudden, after that motion was filed, they said, oh, we're going to do it. And, uh, well, right. They want to control the if they can control the narrative. Uh, exactly. All the and, better for them. Yeah, and considering that the law says that it can do it, uh, the committee decided let's see if we can get to an agreement, and they were through the motion. The judge said, "Okay, no problem with the drawing it, but you better get, tell me in ten days what you guys are going to do." And what will happen is that the uh, the parties will meet with the uh, magistrate judge in Massachusetts and come to an agreement as to discovery. And so that will just be the process. That's a memorandum effectively outlining how the how that audit will work. Is that essentially? I think that what will happen is that the board will not say that, but it will say, you know what? We are going to provide the non-secure creditors committee with the information we find. Obviously, they're going to provide whatever they want to provide. The problem with all this of the board doing the investigation is that the um, Secure, Unsecured Creditors Committee brought up something that everybody knew. Carlos Garcia was involved in the issuance of $16 billion in uh, Cofina debt. And was that legal? Was that prudent, etc.? So he should be investigated, but he's a member of the board. And how is the board going to investigate itself? I don't know. That's not my problem. So let's let's go on to the first uh, really big contention uh, point of contention, which was the reallocation of the UPR. Uh, UPR, uh, mm -hmm. University of Puerto Rico, uh, made a motion to reconstitute the retiree committee uh, because they yep. were unhappy with the appointments made by the U.S. trustee. Um, namely, that they did not include a, or specifically, that they did not include an active UPR employee on that committee. Mm -hmm. um, so tell us what the, um, a little bit more about the motion and, and what happened. Well, what happened is that they were making the distinction that, you know, you can have a person who is in the UPR and uh, uh, doesn't have the, uh, he, he started over in the other system, and the system doesn't send the retirement funds over to the UPR system. They made all these hypotheticals, which the judge didn't, didn't buy. And basically, they don't want—if you notice, the judge is not very fond of the idea of reconstituting 
uh, uh, any of these committees or uh, creating another committee, which was the alternative that the, the, the lawyer presented. And uh, that was it. I, the judge, I don't think, really thinks there is that great of importance on the, on the issue of the UPR yet. What do you mean by that? Well, the UPR is uh, filed very, um, or sent to the board a fiscal plan very, very recently. Uh, we don't know what they're going to do, uh, but I have a feeling that it, it will also eventually file for chapter for Title Three. And then, once it becomes a Title Three debtor, how would that ch affect the committees? Well, you'll have an unsecured, unsecured creditors committee for the UPR, and you'll have a retiree committee for the UPR. So, but that's then. Not now. And of course, the board has to be the has to be the one to to declare that UPR goes into Title Three. Yeah, the only one who can do it. So all of the, the way I saw really kind of all of yesterday was that that this these are motions uh, positioning the chess game as best yes. they can for yes. a future fight. Really, all, almost all of these issues were to me strategic moves that are one and two steps away from where I think the general public thinks this is. I, I sort of envisioned it as everyone is, is trying to get as much scope on their side, present and future, right mm -hmm. now as they can. Instead of beginning to argue the points, it really is, is more about, a seems to me, a strategy of controlling the narrative and controlling the game as best you mm -hmm. can uh, exactly. without, without uh, going down any alleys you can't get out of. Exactly. And in all fairness, and you know I'm not fond of the board, but in all fairness, the law puts them in the position of the debtor in possession. And the debtor in possession or the trustee is the one who, who, who calls the shots on those things. Right. And whatever they say has great weight for, for any judge, even if they're uh, uh, un, unreasonable, et cetera. They ha they, what they say has uh, weight. Right. Well, that came up at the end of uh, court with Feinstock's comments. Uh, one of the last comments made was uh, something along the lines of uh, Congress did decide to give the board control, and thank God he did. Um, and you actually asked me about that later because you had interpreted that differently. Yeah, um, and I, before I asked you, I asked him, and he gave me exactly the same answer that you gave me. So I, I assume that that's what he meant. In terms that the board sh should control all the filings. Right. It, it, was, it wasn't as, as declarative or, or strong as a motive as it perhaps seemed. It was simply a statement of that is what happened and was necessary and because you have to have one person or one group that, that does that. And, and I agree with him in that yeah, sense. I agree right. as well. So, um, so, but the end of the day um, with what happens now? What happens now on, on this particular thing? On, on what, on the uh, creditors committee? Well, well she, she, she uh, denied doing either of the things, correct? Well, yeah, in terms of the, uh, there were three creditor committee issues, and two of them she denied outright. No, I, I'm talking about UPR specifically, just to oh. close that topic out. That means oh, she, yeah. she simply just outright denied it, but as you and I were saying, that may come back, some element of this is likely to come back if, if UPR goes into Title III. Exactly, because actually it would probably not even come back. It would just, you know, there will be a naming of right. a, a committee, uh, of those two committees that already exist here, and that's going to be like uh, pretty straightforward and necessary probably. Right, uh, just simply a part of the process. Um, exactly. So let's move to the one where you actually spoke to the court, which is the <laughs> municipalities 
um, of Puerto Rico, one mm -hmm. of the um, a, a group got together and said, as I understand it, basically, we deserve, we the municipalities deserve our own committee to represent mm -hmm. us uh, in b before the court in this mm -hmm. matter. And uh, tell us what the argument was to create the committee, and then uh, you can very naturally speak to your objection to that, which you actually gave to the court. Okay. Uh, first of all, we ought to remember the committees are paid by the by the debtor. Okay, so if their committee is created, uh, the people who want the committee to exist do not pay for it. Okay, that's the first thing. And that and we saw that we had a gentleman from the great state of Texas. <laughs> there was a lot of discussion yesterday of Texas and Queens and all of these sorts of. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was that was an interesting interesting element. So anyway, sorry. Okay, and the, the thing is that they said, oh, we have causes of action. We have claims against the government. And I said, Your Honor, what claims are they? I mean, my client has claims, actually filed proof of claims, and some others had filed proof of claims. Your, your client being the municipality uh, of San Sebastian. Yeah, right. And uh, the second one is the claims are, oh, the government took away our money. Uh, yeah, but you know, you don't, you're not entitled to the money the government gives you. It's not an entitlement. It's like whatever the government wants to give you. You don't second, have a direct claim on it. Exactly. The second one is the GDB. Okay, of course the GDB is evil and all that stuff, which prompted somebody to get up and say the GDB was not evil, but that's not Biden, the point. Bi yeah, Biden stock, I think it was. No, no. It was, it was oh, no, it was, a, it was a woman. Um, no, no, it was a guy. It was a guy. It was a gentleman with oh. uh, uh, thinning hair and glasses. Oh, okay. Well, the thing is that I say... Okay, fine. They have claims against the GDB, but the GDB is not in bankruptcy. GDB is doing a Title VI. The GDB is not a part of the government, and the case law doesn't say it's a part of the government. And worse is that these municipalities never, never, ever file a claim against the GDB like San Juan and Cahuas did or try to intervene in those cases. And that took the day. So in this case, she'd simply decline to consider... Um, yeah. the motion. What happens now, just as I asked the question of what happens kind of with UPR, um, what happens now with the municipalities? Because they're not in the same position of, they, they are also not yet in Title III, correct? Exactly. They're not in Title III. They're not even covered entities under right. promise. So they, they uh, as I told the court, Your uh, Honor, I think that all municipalities should be here. But they no, either they can get together and you know hire one lawyer for 10, 15, 20 municipalities, or they can do what like my client did. Get yourself a lawyer, and he defends only your interests. So then let's move on to uh, one of the most interesting components, which and, and complicated, uh, which is the GEO uh, as unsecured creditor uh, committee or, or, or request to become a committee. Um, they said, okay. as I understand it, let's, Your Honor, we need to reconstitute the Unsecured Creditor Committee. The GOs should be represented on that. Um, or if you won't do that, you should let us create a committee for ourselves. Is that fair? Essentially, that. Uh, the first one is, and they have a point, the government said, we say we are, we're, we are um, secured. The government says we don't even have a priority, which is important. And uh, under that circumstances, we should be in the Unsecured Creditors Committee. And the Unsecured Creditors Committee does not want them there. Okay? Uh, the defendant, I mean, the, the debtor doesn't want them there. The uh, trustee doesn't want them there. 
because they have sort of like already decided what they're going to do in the uh, claim against Cofina. The GOs want the claims against Cofina to include what they claim is the reality of the Cofina, which is not necessarily what the board said is the reality of Cofina. And that's the reason why they're fighting over this. And she simply refused to rule on this one. Yeah, that means, if you notice, as, as I said before, she denied from the bench two other motions on, on reconstituting the, uh, the committees. She's thinking about it. Obviously, the, the uh, creditors have a point. I mean, you can't be secured and unsecured. Actually, you can be secured and unsecured at both times because you can be secured up to a certain amount right. and unsecured to the rest. So, so you can. Uh, and, but on the other hand, they are owed $19 billion. It's the biggest amount of money that uh, of any group. And right. they're not in that committee. It's like, whoa, what's going on here? But So let's, let's go on to the uh, PREPA part of this, because that was another really interesting uh, point. Was uh, Perhaps the most surprising was that both lawyers uh, opened the section by saying, your Honor, the, the single thing that we all agree on today pretty much is that, that you have the authority to rule on this next issue. You don't need to do anything else. You can rule today. And, uh, you know, this is, this yeah. is, and it would, it would, it would be, there's no question. Yeah. So the issue, as I understand it, is that, of course, the RSA having failed, the PREPA bondholders are saying, we have liens on the billing revenues for PREPA. PREPA is unwilling to change the rates to accommodate paying that debt, even though that is, that is the purpose of, of the lien. Um, and if you're not going to allow us to, uh, well, we, we want to lift the stay in order to, to make the argument that everything should now go to a trustee uh, or to a receiver. Talk about talk about the, the issue and, and really kind of how it was framed. Okay, what they're saying is, uh, we have a we have a lien that includes the right, and this is true. Uh, Judge Bezos decided that in the uh, Franklin, California, his decision, among other things, said uh, the taking away the right to a trust uh, receiver is a taking without just compensation. Because that's what the Quebra uh, Criolla law did, among other things. So on. Then they're saying, since we have more than the twenty, the required twenty-five percent of bondholders saying we need a receiver, any court that is presented this issue will appoint a receiver, which is true. The law is that way. The law says that. The law of prepa says that. And uh, that receiver would be the one that would ask the uh, energy board for the 3.5 cent increase per kilowatt hour. The judge has reservations in terms of, but what do we do? I think it was 305, 308 that Three, says. 305, 306. Yeah. 303, what I wrote down at least was 303, 305, and 306. Well, the defendant, the, uh, the movements were saying 303. She was saying 305. The thing is that her view is that Promesa says that she has control over the assets of the estate. And if I there is a receiver, you would have control over them. Unfortunately, the, the guys who are arguing for the bondholders do not explain what the, what the law says, the Puerto Rico law. When it says a receiver, 
and actually in Spanish it's called a, a uh, trustee, interestingly, not a receiver. What they say is that this receiver will deal with any default and will cure the default, will do everything that needs to be done to cure the default. In this case, is pay them, of course. Second of all is that once that is done, his job ends and he leaves. Uh, third, he cannot sell parts of the of the um, of prepa and he cannot mortgage any parts of prepa, which is important because it's not the receiver. Normally, what he does in, in common law is to take property, he receives it and then he sells it. But and and he, that's in uh, this is again. So we come back to uh, an issue that that we haven't adequately covered, which is the differences between common law and. Um, the Siete Partidas and the Spanish law that, that kind of has developed in parallel and deals with things differently, correct? If you call that law, but Siete Partidas are like, I'm not a fan of that, but let's, let, let me put it this way. Puerto Rico, Spain, and Europe in general have what is called civil law, which is the remnants of the Roman code, and they have everything codified, right? In common law, Contrary to that, the judges made the law as it came up. What happens tr nowadays is that in, c in civil law jurisdictions, there's a lot more decisions. And in the common law jurisdiction of the United States, there's a lot more statutes. A lot of the common law in the United States is being substituted by, by actual statutory uh, laws. Right. And, and this is an issue um, that I keep coming back to because people you know, we all assume that what we grew up with was normal. And uh, everyone in the States, may even I think some reasonably sophisticated bondholders until this all fell apart, didn't realize how different Puerto Rico's legal system is. Um, for example, the, the role of a uh, receiver in common law versus uh, civil law, they're in different functions. We, we, we don't have that, period. Right. I mean, it looks like the, the, trust, the idea of a trustee is like, what is that? Right. Uh, and, 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 and what happens is that when they did the 1974 bond agreement, they used the word receiver. And I am sure that most of the lawyers from Puerto Rico were dealing with that. They didn't know what the heck that really was. Right. What a trustee, a trustee is different. Trustee is going to do your business in, in, in the name of another person, in the benefit of that person. A receiver is a little bit different. And also, the law of Puerto Rico states that the receiver answers to the court. It doesn't answer to the bondholders. It doesn't answer to prepa. It answers to the court. And that is what would happen. So, so let's go ahead and say that, that the judge uh, basically tabled it and said, I'm not going to make a decision today. But had she made a decision to appoint a receiver, that is what would have happened? That person would simply report directly to her? No, would that's the interesting part. And this is really technical what I'm going to say. Under 105B of the Bankruptcy Code, she cannot appoint a receiver or a trustee, okay? That she cannot, period. She can lift the state to let another judge, as she was saying, across the street or across the, uh, the, the aisle, to appoint him. But she can make that lifting of the state limited to him simply going to the, to the energy board and requesting the increase of the uh, amount of, uh, of, of the tariffs. But 
she can limit it in terms that he can't pay or do anything. That is the the job of the board or of, of PREPA. She can limit it that very much. Just as she has limited um, the li where she has lifted the stay in mostly small cases, she has very specifically put in there that you know uh, you can fight. For example, you can fight to the point of of uh, damages. Uh, the island can pay damages that are insured, but you cannot go after assets of the island uh, if you win this argument. And that's a standard operating procedure when you lift a stay in cases of this nature on um, bankruptcy. You get your judgment and you go over to the bankruptcy court and say, Your Honor, here's the judgment. And then she, in, in the uh, plan, the bankruptcy plan, or in the plan of adjustment here, in, in our case, uh, that amount of money will be dealt with in whatever fashion that amount of money is dealt with. How did you interpret, so this is, this is what I wrote down, um, as she, after she reserved decision on the uh, lift of the stay, she actually addressed directly uh, the lawyer, and it, I don't recall exactly, I, I read it as, as a statement more than a question. Uh, it was something along the lines of, you are private creditors seeking mm -hmm. to commandeer control of the governmental function and seeking rate changes from PREC, which is the Ener Energy Commission, and to be receiver of revenues and property, a mm -hmm. non-debtor, non-governmental party controlling the management and husbanding the revenues. Mm -hmm. How do you interpret a statement like that in context of her having uh, reserve decision, and ha this issue is going to come back up. How do you interpret that as a lawyer and as someone looking at this with a bankruptcy uh, experience? Well, she, I would say, advantage uh, board. She has uh, reservations, but if she really believed that those reservations were valid, she would have fought, uh, uh, ruled from the bench. She is thinking about it, but she's probably inclined not to grant uh, the uh, the remedy that is being sought. So a reserve decision, uh, which was actually what she did in, in all of these cases, means what exactly? I'll, I'll decide later. Means I can, I'm just, I'm taking it under advisement and I'll decide when and if I want to? Not when, if I, when and if I want to, because, uh, and, the, and the judge is very clear, when the judge was appointed, I immediately went to certain websites that, that uh, put not qualifications, but to put opinions on judges. Right. And she generally had a very positive opinions, but they always said that she was very slow. As you have seen, she's anything but slow in this case, because PROMESA, contrary to other statutes, has a part that specifically says that everything has to be decided quickly by the courts. The First Circuit in the Peaje uh, decision actually said that again and told Judge Vesosa, you have to decide this quickly. No, it wasn't Peaje, it was an Altair. In Al well, it's the same case, but an Altair, uh, Altair did win, Peaje did lose. So they said, you know, it goes back to you and make a hearing as quickly as possible because such and such a section says you have to do it. So okay? is this likely to result in a hearing then or an evidentiary hearing or, uh, or, or is she likely to simply rule written? Uh, I thought that she was going to say, I'm going to need an, uh, uh, an evidentiary hearing, but she, you didn't hear that, neither did I. In any, so, of the, in any of the three. Yeah, and she may say, you know what, I'm going to need uh, evidence here. So, but, so that but, would be the kind of path forward would be, one, either a ruling will come, uh, or two, if she feels like she needs more uh, arguments, she would hold an evidentiary hearing on each, on any or all of these uh, contested issues. Or... 
if she wants to be uh, make it more difficult for her to be reversed. When you have a, a, an evidentiary hearing, whatever evidence you receive and whatever weight you give it is given high deference. It's a, it's abuse, not abuse of discretion, it's clear error standard, which is almost impossible to reverse. And so she's, uh, now explain that, she's setting that up to she may. not if be she, overturned? Exactly. She, if she, for example, if she rules whatever she rules uh, based upon the evidence that, not the evidence, the, the papers submitted, that is a standard is called uh, a de novo review. De novo review means that the judge in the appellate court will look at things as if it had been presented to him. He ignores what the judge did and decides the case himself, he, or themselves. In a uh, clear error, you have to, like, the judge had to do a really dumb and stupid thing for the, for the appellate court to reverse them. Interesting. I didn't understand that distinction. So on certain type of appeals, it's really that the judge uh, imagines him or herself back in a position and here here's the document I, gave, I understood um, mm -hmm. and I'll interpret it the way I want. Exactly. Interesting. Didn't know that. So, when, But when you are receiving live testimony, whatever that live testimony is and who you believe, that is given great, great, great deference. So she would, by having an evidentiary hearing, ultimately retain more control and be less likely to be overturned at the first? Exactly. Much okay. less likely. Okay. Let's move on uh, to Kofina, the final issue, uh, which was, uh, why don't you set it up, Kirpalani, uh, well, I'll set it up, Kirpalani, who is an affable, uh, interesting, articulate guy, uh, one of the more interesting lawyers so far in this case, basically came to an agreement with the board in June that the July 1 payment uh, to the Bank of New York uh, trustee would be held instead of actually being be sent on to to bondholders. Um, the judge ruled. Uh, well, tell tell us what happened from there. Okay, well, I have to correct a little bit. Okay. Kripalani, in all fairness, Kripalani never agreed to that. It's just that upon what was what was going on, that the uh, the Bank of uh, New York Mellon had at least four different claims on it. She said, you know, I have to rule on who has a right to. The to that property. I thought they and, all stipulated to that. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay, I got that wrong. I thought they had stipulated. No, 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 Kofina, bondholders would never stipulate to that. But the point is that the judge made a ruling, and I think it was a very uh, fair ruling and uh, for every, everyone. The money is uh, there. Nobody's spending it. And because if the government of Puerto Rico has an entitlement to it, if you give it to the bondholders, you're never going to see it. Right. And if you give it to the government, the bondholders will never give it, get it. So the same thing happens. So she did a very Solomonic thing. She said everything's going to be stayed and nobody's going to get paid. Now, obviously, uh, Mr. Kripalani's clients didn't like that. And he disguised the motion saying that it was, you know, a clarification. But in reality, it was a motion for reconsideration. And she said that. She said that at the opening. It, and it is. Uh, a very. Um, he was trying to hide it under different under yes. a couch it differently, right? But but she said, just so you know uh, how to proceed, I'm considering this a motion for reconsideration. Which it, which it is. Reconsiderations are frowned upon. You have It's a very taxing standard. You have to have 
newly discovered or something that is like so utterly ridiculously bad that you did that you have to correct it. And she said, you know, there's no new, new evidence and there's no injustice here. And he lost. And he didn't like it. Right. So on that point, then, we're, we're basically, th that one is decided. She's, she's done yeah. with that one. Um, and if he dares and bring that up a third time, <laughs> he better have some, <laughs> some real, uh, what is it called, a manifest uh, error? Yeah. Manifest error of law, I think, was the was way it was, was phrased. Um, no. And really, this is how it ended up closing, um, which was uh, everybody, a lot of folks had left the courtroom, um, but I wrote this really fascinating uh, response down. So Kirpalani says, Your Honor, we will abide, we understand. Um, and he, he asked a question of, oh, does that mean I cannot blank? And she said, I haven't told anybody Mm -hmm. They can't do anything. Um, exactly. She's not happy when you said that. Right. And then she said, um, uh, this is a, a paraphrase, but it's, it's pretty close. Um, if the order, the, the interplea order that was made in, in June for the July 1 payment has implications for new money going to the Bank of New York, you all should talk about it and see if you can stipulate to something. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, there is a litigation machine not seen in the history of man or woman present, mm -hmm. meaning present uh, in this courtroom, really. You mm -hmm. can queue up the issue so as to not fling facts and ask me to improvise retrospectively modifications to an order I entered under a specific set of circumstances earlier this year. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty big slap, it sounds like to me, but it also is a clear um, kind of guideline for her. She seems to, to, she understands the, the monolith that's been created and that she's, she's at the head of, of one of the most complicated cases the, the U.S. federal system has ever seen. You're absolutely correct. So let, let's absolutely. summarize what happened yesterday. So tell me, were there any real surprises out, out of what came out of yesterday for you? Um, the only two surprises I had were the fact that those two motions that she reserved, uh, the uh, creditors committee for GOs and the PREPA uh, decision, she did not, it was a double uh, surprise in the PREPA thing. I thought she was going to say, you know what, guys, I need an evidentiary hearing. She didn't do that. She may still do it, but she, if she really thought it, she would have said it right there and let's get calendars and say when we're going to do it, blah, blah, blah. But she didn't. And she reserved uh, her ruling, even though she seemed reluctant to do it. So, so then, what does that? What does? How does that mean that, that you think? Because I mean, again, we we just just said that there were two two ways out of this. Uh, typically, there would be a ruling forthcoming, which uh, could be more easily overturned, uh, mm -hmm. or she can do an evidentiary hearing and uh, perhaps maintain more control now and be less likely to o be overturned. So then, are, are you thinking that that? It's implying she's leaning towards simply going ahead and ruling with a very limited scope, as she did with the other lifts of stay. I think she she will rule. I don't know how she will rule, but she will. I think she will rule for, uh, in a in a written opinion, longer written opinion, um, because you have we have to understand what was going on in Prepa. In Prepa, okay, this is not the end of. If tomorrow she denies the motion, there's still a motion saying the RSA had to be approved. Uh, uh, the Promesa board could not deny it. Right. If that goes forward, then the bankruptcy's off. There's another one in, or at least the part of the bondholders, and the bankruptcy is off because the RSA would go in. 
It's, the other one is the fact that the UTIER, the uh, union, has also said, hey, these PROMESA people were not appointed according to the Constitution, therefore, they're an illegal board. They didn't say that the uh, bankruptcy... Well, that, that was actually Aurelius, wasn't it? That wasn't actually UTIER. No, no, no. It was UTIER. They, they filed it first, actually. Okay. And then that same day, later on in the day, Aurelius filed theirs, which is a much better motion, a much tighter thing. It has people from. They have uh, Ted Olson, who was uh, Solicitor General of the United States. He was. He's been before the Supreme Court many times. And interestingly enough, I think his name is Mac uh, something. Uh, there's an old lawyer who was the one who argued the Quiebra uh, Criteria, the uh, Franklin, California case, for the plaintiffs, the bondholders, and they won. So you have two heavyweights right there on the, of, of Supreme Court cases. It signals the idea that, hey, guys, we're in for the long run. Right. We're going to take it everywhere we have to take it. Wow. Well, uh, that was a, it was a surprise to me to see that one. Um, so, but, but, but yeah. Again, we come back to, it seems like I close every show with, wow, this just gets more complex, but it, I swear it, it really seems to. Better. Yeah, it, it just gets more and more complicated. Because very soon we'll see uh, the judge, in, you know, on Tuesday we had the Peaje trial, okay? Right. She and may rule on that soon, this month, she can rule. We have, interestingly enough, the Cofina, the, uh, the whole thing that Kiko Kerpalani was fighting about, the last briefing, which is motions, etc., are, are to be filed October 3rd, and according to her order, if she believes she's going to decide things, and if she believes there's an, uh, an evidentiary hearing is necessary, then there will be. So the COFINA payment may go past February, which is the other big payment day, COFINA. That's the next, the next big payment date. Yes. Yeah. So, well, may you live in interesting times. Yep. So thanks for joining me, John. Thanks for having me. You can find John on Twitter at Mudlaw, M-U-D-D-L-A-W. You can find me at Gillam Hall, G-I-L-L-A-M-H-A-L-L, -L -L, or at the website, prnewsroundup.com. The podcast is also available on Stitcher and iTunes.